You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, thank you guys for being here. Uh, I'm especially excited to see all your faces as I've been out. I had best intentions to be here Sunday mornings uh, after Ellie was born and uh, realized how insanely important and valuable that sleep is in the the crazy times. So (laughs) sad to be away, but uh, very glad to be back. And um, I'm especially thankful Uh, for all of you who filled in here for Sunday mornings. Desiree really held the fort together in organizing and communicating with um, all of you volunteers and uh, Rodney and um, uh, and Anthony um, also led things as well. And Aiden and Abe handled kind of all the technical behind the scenes stuff. So um, so appreciative of you guys. We're a small community, and the fact that we can do that is um, really incredible. So um, thank you guys for always doing that. Um, and yeah, so as we get started today, of course, um, I uh, wanted to remind you that we'll be taking communion uh, again later in the service. And so if you uh, haven't already done so, uh, please go ahead and grab some elements, whatever you have around your house um, for the cup and, uh, and bread this morning. And uh, welcome, Abe. You missed my thank you for all of your help while I was gone. So I'll just drop that in there so you hear it. <laughs> um, I'm really excited again to be back. Uh, thank you guys for being so supportive of Ashley and I and all of your sweet um, messages and uh, emails and, um, and, and coming to our shower to celebrate with us has just been great. So looking forward to sharing Ellie with you guys and uh, especially looking forward to when we can do this in person. Um, <clears throat> being away from Sunday mornings reminded me even more so how much our community is so important. And, uh, and even when we only get to do it virtually for the most part, I think that's awesome. Um, so thanks for continuing to do that. And I'm sure uh, that we'll continue talking about how we can have things happen like the Halloween event that happened where we found safe ways um, to be close together and have some of that community. So. Thanks for bearing with us as we're all figuring this out. Um, Of course, today is the first Sunday after the election and there are so many feelings and emotions flying around from before the election. And if you're like me, you probably have um, mixed feelings afterwards, some relief um, and hope for progress and movement and change, but probably also some despair at how divided um, we are as a country and some of the changes that have happened and that we've seen in our democracy and what that means for all of us going forward and what that means for the state of who we are here in the United States. Um, So Aaron's put together his talk this morning and our discussion to continue to talk about those things and know that as we've been um, a political 
politically motivated part of the church um, here in our faith as we talk about things before this election, we're going to continue to do those things. And um, if you see us not, please help keep us accountable. Um, you know, these things that we talk about of justice and, and, and healing and fighting against oppression are things that are at the very core in nature of what it means for us to be God's people. Um, so thank you for being a part of this church again and for doing this. I can't tell you how grateful I am to be back with you this morning. So with that, I'm going to hand things over to Max as he opens us in prayer. Thanks, Bobo. It's, uh, it's good to have you um, with us. Um, just to confirm, do you, um, am I going to hand it back to you for the liturgy responsive reading part after that, or should I go straight into communion? Yeah, yeah I'll hand that it sounds back. great. Great. Let's, um, let's pray. Loving God, as, um, as so many of us have already noted this morning, and as Bob reminded us, we come to this place um, <laughs> from all sorts of different places, um, both physically, emotionally, um, mentally, God, spiritually. We are a messy, broken, fragmented community that chooses to come together that chooses to bring our messiness and full humanity into view with each other, into community with one another. And so God, we start by thanking you and thanking one another um, for creating such a sacred holy space where we can be messy together. God, as Bob just named, um, there is so, so, so much work to be done. And yet we pause and we breathe and we thank you for this breath. We thank you for the privilege to pause. So God, wherever we come from, wherever um, we enter this space um, from, we pray that you would help in this time shape us to be more closely unified, more closely um, bound together, God, for the work that is left to do, for the justice, for the peace, for the hope there is to bring, God, to so many in this world. So thank you for this community. We um, walk together. Show us what it means to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world, in our communities, God. May it be so this morning and each morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, at this time, I am, uh, Max, can I give you host control temporarily here, just as people are still rolling in? You got it. Perfect. Um, awesome. And uh, so this morning, I, um, I wanted to share with you a piece of liturgy um, that has been um, adapted both from the Unitarian Universalist Church and also the United Methodist Church. Um, and they're pieces that have come from kind of a liturgy that's been put together directly in response to where we find ourselves in a place of both hope, but a place of longing, knowing how much we still have left to do, um, that the work that we're called to um, 
is still something that we have to not just work for change in a larger context, but um, recognizing that we work for change within ourselves too, and that we're a part of the systems of injustice and oppression. Um, and so it's a way to take responsibility for those things uh, and move forward and look forward to something new, uh, a greater hope. And I'm sharing my screen with you here. And so this is um, a liturgy for continued change. Um, I'll go ahead and read the parts not in bold. We'll pray together the parts that are in bold. Would you join me in prayer this morning? We stand at a crucial moment in our nation's history. We have fewer voting rights today than we did 50 years ago. 23 states have passed racist voter suppression laws since 2010. At least 17 states have targeted Native Americans and Alaskan Native voters. We will be people who protect the rights of some, sorry, will we be people who protect the rights of some at the expense of others, or will we be a moral people who demand justice for all? We know what is right. To, to do, do justice, justice love, love kindness, kindness, and walk, walk humbly, humbly on this earth. We will be a moral people who demand justice for all. We stand at a crossroads in our nation's history. Federal spending on immigration, deportation, and border policies more than $17 billion, while 340,000 immigrants were removed or deported in 2016. Will we separate families, build walls and detention centers, and continue to scapegoat, punish, and divide? Or will we dismantle systems of oppression and violence? We, we know, know what is moral. To ensure for all people life, life, life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We will work to dismantle all systems of oppression and violence. We believe that the power of our government derives from us, the people, for the purpose of providing for the general welfare and protection, the human rights of all. 13 states with voter suppression laws refused to expand Medicaid. 25 states have laws that preempt cities from passing minimum wage laws. We, the people, will rise up and stand for justice and kindness and liberty for all. We, we will fight for the hundred and forty million poor people nation. We will shine the light on voter suppression and how racist attacks on democracy impact all people. We denounce oppression and violence in our communities. We built justice systems that to this day reward privilege and whiteness and penalize poverty and brown skin, where black men and women continue to be killed by police, where we have valued retribution over rehabilitation. We know that we must seek justice together. 
when we and save, save one person's life, life we save all of humanity. Therefore, we will, we will seek justice for the one and for the many. We will show kindness to the one and to the many. We will walk humbly with the many. When we come to understand that all life is connected, that my well-being is connected to your well-being, that my rights are connected to your rights, only then can we become that beloved community. We know, we know what, what is, is right, right and what is moral. To do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with one another in the quest for life, liberty, for all people. Gracious God, you are a God who gives us hope in times of despair. You are a God who celebrates with us in times of joy. And you are a God who calls us to be an active participant in this world that we get to build into something for greatness, for holiness, for the hope and healing of all of your people. God, teach us to be stewards of your justice, to be bearers of your mercy in this world. And in this very moment, to be people seeking unity, to unite brokenness, to come together. Because despite all of our disagreements, God, we share so much in common. We are people born and created in your image. Each one of us, life as valuable as the next. God, this is what we hope for. This is what we want to see. We thank you for strides of progress. We ask that you'd help us to be a part of future change. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, <laughs> I think it's my turn. I'm trying to figure out how to send it back to you. I feel so uh, Zoom illiterate all of a sudden when it comes to host controls. Uh, uh, I see, I see. Window. You can do that right there from the more menu. Thanks, Max. Got it, got it. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, well, to continue um, on that, um, mindset uh, we're going to take communion and um if you haven't done it with us before um as bob mentioned a little earlier if you just want to grab something near you or um run to your pantry or, or kitchen um please take a few moments to do so um we celebrate communion in diverse ways and um as those of you who have heard me say when i leave communion each week i like hearing um the different things that y'all are using. So if you want to drop those in the chat, it always makes me smile. I will say I did think Oreo when I first read that was going to be a communion item and not a pet name, but it can be both. And we welcome both. Cheez-Its and Diet Coke from Des, classic, classic combo there. I have Fruit Loops today. Um, I, uh, I went for to get some Cheez-Its and I think my four-year-old ate them all. So I stole his Fruit Loops and 
as I say that out loud, it sounds a little bad, but I'm going to choose that we will consecrate it in this time as communion. So um, um, good things will come from it. <laughs> I'll explain it to him when he's older. Um, well, hopefully you, you have your items and um, it seems especially um, this week, I mean, it seems true every week, but, but this week as a um, reminder, communion is the coming together at a table and sharing a moment, right, of breaking bread and um, drinking wine together. But really, in its essence, it is sharing bonds and creating bonds of togetherness, um, that in the taking of communion, we become one. And for thousands of years, theologians um, have debated what that meant, right, and still do. Um, but we know that in the act of taking communion it is an act of solidarity. Um, and especially when we look to the first communion, right? The last supper, when Jesus introduced us to this concept of breaking bread in remembrance of him and drinking wine in remembrance of him and what he's done. Um, we realize that he does this for and with his um, enemy, you could say that Judas, who Jesus knew would betray him even to death and torture, he breaks bread with and he shares in bread and wine. And so in times like these, as we've talked about, that we feel so deeply divided, I would argue that communion is one of the most powerful things we could ever do. Um, so I want us all Whatever that looks like for you, hopefully it involves healthy, healthy boundaries um, and safety and justice and righteousness and all of those things must come. Um, but I hope in some way, as we think about breaking bread together, we can think about how it is that we might come to a table um, with those who do not have our best interests in mind, um, for those who, um, our family, um, our people of God. I don't have easy answers on how to do that. And I'm not going to tell you how to do that or make any one of you do that. Um, but I want to pa just pause and reflect on that as we take communion this morning. So with that, I invite you to take the bread or the Cheez-Its or the Fruit Loops or the uh, Fig Bar donuts, water and donuts. That's a good one kombucha and plantain chips. And as we take together, uh, remember Christ's body broken for you and for me and for all. Hopefully you guys are getting some of that crunch on the uh, earbuds. <laughs> and likewise, I invite you to take the cup, uh, the sign of the covenant of Christ's blood and take it in remembrance of Christ. And may we commit our hands and our feet and our bodies and our minds to living out justice and love in a world that needs it. Amen. I think Angie has some announcements for us. Yep, good morning, everyone. So this week, um, pretty standard week. We have the gathering on Wednesday at 7.30 and Philosophy Thursday night at 6 p.m., both via the Zoom link. And then this week, Aaron will be uh, leading Holy Happy Hour on Tuesday night at 9 p.m. at this link as well. So bring a drink with you, get ready to chat. And then we have a couple upcoming blood drives. Um, one is December 10 and one is January 11. Welcome back, Bob. 
would you let us know if there's any additional dates or if you know if there's still any openings? Um, I do know that new uh, openings were released for both of those drives again. Um, so yeah, we should be all great. We have January on the books and February will be coming soon. Great, awesome, thank you for that, Bob. Um, and then just to close out this week's announcement, as a reminder for everyone, uh, if you need any resources or any help with anything, please reach out to any of us on leadership. And that's it today. Thanks, Angie. So now is that time of the service where we share our joys and concerns, our, our prayer requests, words of thanksgiving. Um, as always, you can put it in the chat column if you're more comfortable putting it there and, and I'll do my best to address it from there. And um, otherwise, unmute and um, let us know what's going on, what's on your heart. And um, we'll pray as a family. Is there anybody this morning? Yeah, hi, Aaron. Um, I just found out that one of my coworkers passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. We see you, Randy. We see you. Um, Take your time. <laughs> time. His name was George Martinez, and he died. <clears throat> and he was only 62. And um, just pray for us to him. Absolutely. Let's pray. Loving God, we lift up George Martinez's family as they grieve. We, we pray for Randy uh, in his hour of, of grief and suffering. And we ask that he might be comforted, that the family might be comforted. We, we pray for um, all those uh, at this time that are entering into a time of grief over, over George. And um, we ask that they just might receive um, the community and the care that they need. But we pray for our, our friend Randy as well. Um, may he know our love and support now. In Jesus' name. Thanks. Thank you, Randy. So sorry. Somebody else. Um, can we pray for my friend Ryan in Utah? He's um homeless right now. He's really struggling. His name's Ryan Cherowitz. And he's right. in Utah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We also pray for Ryan in Utah as he's homeless. And we pray for his well-being holistically, um, that he might receive the, the material resources he needs to take care of himself. And uh, we pray for his safety. Um, we lift him up now. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. Sure, Randy. Anybody else? I have one. Can we just uh, say a prayer for our nation and smooth transition of power and... There's a lot of discord going on right now. Yeah, absolutely, Angie. Thank you for bringing that up. We pray for our nation at this critical time in its history and all of our loved ones, our acquaintances, uh, our friends, our family, as this is an incredibly contentious and difficult time. Um, we don't know what's gonna happen, but we pray for peace. We pray for justice. We pray for renewal. We pray for um, 
some kind of way forward and that hearts and minds might be changed and reoriented towards justice, towards love, towards compassion. Um, give us a vision, we pray, for what that looks like in our circles of influence, in our spheres of family and friends. Give us wisdom, we pray. Give us a heart for others, even those that are um, advocating for injustice or, or um, not the well-being of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Angie. We see you, Cassandra, uh, in the chat column. She says, my family is still struggling, but I'm grateful we've made it this far and confident we will do better and be better. And for you, I pray that that will continue, um, that that will continue to go in a positive direction. Amen. Um, all right, well, with that, uh, Max, I believe I hand it back over to you. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so this morning, I'm going to read a series of poems. I picked three out. Um, throughout so much of these last few years, and then especially in 2020 um, and now, uh, I think we find ourselves looking to art and artists um, who tend to have a prophetic voice um, to name things about society and things about ourselves that we don't often um, able we aren't often able to um, grasp, um, if not in a sort of poetic way. So um, I felt it would be good to read a few of these. Um, one's by Lucille Clifton. Um, she was a black um, poet in the 70s and 80s, um, poet laureate of the state of Maryland um, and a finalist to the Pulitzer Prize. Um, but I'm gonna read a, a poem by her called Won't You Celebrate With Me? I'm going to read a, a more modern poem by Jamal May. Um, he's a poet, a black poet out of Detroit. Um, and we've heard about Detroit and Michigan a lot um, <laughs> in the last few months, but um, especially in this last week. And um, personally, I've, I've seen um, celebration of Detroit and I've seen a lot of negative things um, being say, said about Detroit and um, just how they run elections and you know the people there and their trustworthiness and it, it's really heartbreaking um, and I, I feel like this poem captures so much of that um, and it's beautiful and then finally I'll read um, these are all pretty short finally I'll read of history and hope um, by Miller Williams so um, I invite you just to let this time be a meditation and be a time of listening, of reflecting. So just settle in, take a breath, um, and let's reflect um, so we might be able to point forward um, with hope. So first up, Lucille Clifton, won't you celebrate with me? Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model, born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And now there are birds here by Jamal May for Detroit. There are birds here 
so many birds here is what I was trying to say when they said those birds were metaphors for what is trapped between buildings and buildings. No, the birds are here to root around for bread, the girl's hands tear and toss like confetti. No, I don't mean the bread is torn like cotton, I said confetti. And no, not the confetti a tank can make of a building. I mean the confetti a boy can't stop smiling about, and no, his smile isn't much like a skeleton at all. And no, his neighborhood is not like a war zone. I am trying to say his neighborhood is as tattered and feathered as anything else, as shadow pierced by sun and light parted by shadow dance as anything else. But they won't stop saying how lovely the ruins how ruined the lovely children must be in that birdless city. And of History and Hope by Miller Williams. We have memorized America, how it was born and who we have been and where. In ceremonies and silence, we say the words, telling the stories, singing the old songs. We like the places they take us. Mostly we do. The great and all the anonymous dead are there. We know the sound of all the sounds we brought. The rich taste of it is on our tongues. But where are we going to be and why and who? The disenfranchised dead want to know. We mean to be the people we meant to be, to keep on going where we meant to go. But how do we fashion the future? Who can say how except in the minds of all of those who will call it now, the children, the children? And how does our garden grow? With waving hands, oh, rarely in a row, and flowering faces and brambles that we can no longer allow. Who or many people coming together cannot become one people falling apart? who dreamed for every child and even chance cannot let luck alone turn doorknobs or not, whose law was never so much of the hand as the head cannot let chaos make its way to the heart, who have seen learning struggle from teacher to child cannot let ignorance spread itself like rot. We know what we have done and what we have said and how we have grown degree by slow degree believing ourselves toward all we have tried to become, just and compassionate, equal, able, and free. All this is in the hands of children, eyes already set on a land we never can visit. It isn't there yet, but looking through their eyes, we can see what our long gift to them may come to be, if we can truly remember they, will not forget. Let that be our prayer um, that we might build a better country, a better world for our children who are watching us and will not forget. Amen. Amen, thank you, Max. So I wanna structure my talk today as less of a sermon and more of a dialogue about the election and what we think it means for our country, for our friends, our family, um, 
and what do we think it means for the church going forward? This is obviously a, a momentous uh, event, right? And I want to begin by sharing my feelings here uh, about this, about the last week, <laughs> uh, this last week, and I want to hear yours too today. I went from discouragement, grief, and fear on Tuesday night to hope on Wednesday to confidence on Thursday and then to um, relief and joy on Friday and Saturday, like, like so many of you probably. And to be clear, um, I'm not a big fan of the Biden-Harris ticket. However, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention and celebrate in some way the election of the first woman of color to the vice presidency. I got choked up last night as I saw the faces of other women of color um, re on TV listening to um, her speech. Uh, that's, that's huge, right? And, and I think we need to recognize that. But I, I see the celebration yesterday in the various cities across our nation and even across the world is really interesting. Many of you probably saw that meme on social media that said, live your life in such a way that the entire planet doesn't dance in the street when you lose your job, <laughs> right? Uh, and that reminds me of scriptures like Proverbs 22. Here's our scripture for today, I guess. Uh, so maybe this is the, the sermon part of my talk. When the reign of the wicked end, the people rejoice. When the reign of the wicked end, the people rejoice. So I, I think that's what the relief and celebration is mostly about. It's much more about who lost the election rather than who won, in, in my opinion. But pertaining to the church, the exit poll numbers are out, and it seems white evangelical support for Trump remained pretty high. It, it dipped slightly uh, based upon the numbers I saw. Uh, it dipped slightly from 81% in 2016 to 75% this time around. Uh, and while that's a shift in the right direction, I don't know how many people that equates to, I, over a million, I think, um, it's a shift in the right direction. Um, but uh, I, I would have hoped for more than that, much more. And I don't think it's hard to explain why it wasn't more. White evangelicals see Trump as a kind of deliverer and a kind of a kind of firewall against a godless and unchristian future America in, in their estimation. Uh, Trump functions as a kind of firewall against gay marriage, Black Lives Matter, socialism, abortion, these kinds of issues. The, the white evangelical fear of Black Lives Matter is really about their fear of losing supremacy, white Christian supremacy. Their fear of LGBTQ rights is often couched in the language of religious freedom, right? Losing their religious liberties, so-called religious liberties. They, they fear losing the religious liberty to discriminate against gay people, uh, to fire them uh, in the workplace and to deny them um, marital status. And then there's the issue of abortion. So this is why so many evangelicals support Trump, right? He is seen as this, this last defender uh, of the so-called American Christian uh, you know, values of the American Christian culture. Uh, certainly most support him for purely tribal reasons. I want to make that very clear. I think most white evangelicals support Trump for purely tribal reasons. They're not really thinking through the issues um, or critically engaging with them. They're just following the crowd because they've been told for years that this is how good Christians vote. Um, but underneath all that, is a kind of regressive and oppressive ideology that seeks to eliminate women's reproductive rights, black rights, gay rights, and to sustain white supremacy. 
So this is how I understand the continued high percentage number of white evangelicals who supported Trump in 2020. Uh, and I'd be curious to hear uh, if you see it that way too. But to be clear, I am kind of surprised, maybe I shouldn't be, but I am, that after everything that's happened over the last four years, you know, the lies, the corruption, the, the sheer absence of, of basic decency, uh, the cruelty, the, the cruelty to immigrants and others, if you would have told me four years ago that most evangelicals and even members of my own family would be this oblivious, this careless in their thinking, um, this blind to such obvious cruelty and, and lies, I'm not sure I would have believed you. I find it hard to believe even now and even with all the evidence staring me right in the face. So I think I've become a lot more aware over the last four years of just how susceptible the church is to fascism and to being co-opted by malevolent authoritarian figures who promise them power and, and lasting supremacy. I wanna finish my opening remarks today. I have lots more notes, um, but I don't want to dominate this time. I wanna hear from you as well. And I wanna finish my opening remarks today and, and open it up for discussion with this. Uh, this is a quote from our friend, Tad DeLay, who is always, uh, he always has the best insights on our political and religious situation and the, uh, the intersection of, of politics and, and religion on the evangelical right, being a former evangelical himself, right? He asks this, why is there such unrelenting contempt for feeling empathy today? What feels so impossible is that empathy is fundamentally seen as weakness for so many today. He goes on, I don't know what to do with that. It's overwhelmingly sad. It's hard to accept how impossible it would be to explain to someone why caring for others is a good thing, end quote. I think that really sums up how I feel uh, about the church right now and our predicament today and the aftermath of everything. Um, it, it sums up how I feel, you know, trying to argue for people's basic human rights and, and the well-being of others, especially for those on the margins of society. I feel like we're often trying to explain why empathy is a good thing and, and something that should actually guide, guide us completely uh, and, and why we should care about others, right? Uh, it's kind of an impossible position to be in to have to explain all that or argue for that. Uh, and it reflects just how different the realities we live in truly, truly are. But I'm hopeful. I want to be clear about that. I am, I am hopeful and I'm relieved about what took place this week. I take heart in the fact that most Americans did not vote for more cruelty. <laughs> I think that's an important point to make. Um, so the, those are my thoughts and my musings this morning, and I'd love to hear yours about this week. Um, you know, what do you think this election means for our country? What do you think this election means for the church? Are you hopeful? Are you not hopeful? Are you somewhere in between? Um, where, where are you at? I will post that that quote. Um, well, let me do that now. Copy in there. Make time to think. I know that's uh, loaded questions, right? Big questions. I mean, I. 
I don't know, um, like a lot, you know, I'm not a political science um, student or anything like that. But what I do know um, is what I can, what I've seen and observed. And so for me, I'm always, um, it, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard for, um, for me to kind of see how, how much um, evangelicals, especially those who um, maybe just have never questioned or have never um, deeply studied um, the Bible and theology and things like that. So I'm talking about like the just middle of the road evangelicals who maybe grew up evangelical and things like that. So there are those who have studied, like I'm not gonna talk about them, but the ones who just haven't, but just have gone to church their whole lives and things like that. Just, they, they, they just have intertwined in their head. And this has to do with like church and upbringing and all of that. They've just intertwined in their head that being part of the GOP is Christian. And so like when they start to question that, or even if they think like something, they're like, no, 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 these, these ideologies of like the Republican party and conservatism and all of that, that is part of their faith and their tradition that they don't, that they feel like if they question that they're questioning their faith. And so I think that they, I think that's definitely part of it. Cause as I like my family and things like that, seeing just like knowing that like, if they could take things apart and see like just this action here is absolutely, absolutely atrocious and unacceptable. We would never support this, but because it was done by um, someone in the Republican party or whatever, there's that idea. And I think Romans 13 has a lot to do with it too, about like, you know, be subject to like, governing authorities and all of that. It's like that idea that's been like just crammed on their throat. And so if you never study, if you never question um, the Bible or your spiritual leaders and things like that, like this is the programming that that happens. And yeah, that's, that's what I've seen. Yeah, and you know, you and I, and so many of us here grew up in that world and we're still kind of befuddled by how it works. I find that fascinating. Like I had... I have to remind myself of like how I used to think and really concentrate like, okay, how did I process reality back then? And some, in some ways, it's hard for me to kind of go back in time and think like I used to, to try to relate to where, you know, people, people are at where, where I was at for 30 years. It's so weird that it's so hard for me to do that now. Um, but I can still do it. Don't be wrong. I, I really believe that um, it's so much of it is tribalistic and not purely ideological. I don't believe the majority of evangelicals are evil and racist in their heart. I, I wasn't, I, when I was a fundamentalist uh, and a conservative, politically speaking, um, I, I, I wasn't so because I hated black people. I wasn't so because I hated gay people. I didn't hate the poor. I didn't harbor these feelings in my heart, but the ideology I was buying into was absolutely racist and homophobic. So I was participating in all that. And by no reason, by no means, you know, giving anybody a pass, but, you know, again, I really think the tribal dimension to it all, you've heard me say this before, is really important to understand that the, the, the need to uh, you know, be part of that tribe that is our family, our friends, our church is so strong and so overwhelming that you don't critically examine what you're doing. You're not critically examining the ideas and who you're harming, uh, especially when the God card is pulled into the tribe, right? When, it's, when you're not just told this is what it means to be us and get in line, but you're told if you don't believe these things, you are going to hell. You are displeasing God you are going to miss out on blessings or something like that, you know, divine blessings and, and incur uh, divine punishment, right? 
these are incredibly difficult things to defeat uh, and get over. Uh, kudos to many of us who are able to do that. But um, I, it's so complex, Desiree, you're absolutely right. I think that makes, I think we need to pray for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We need to have compassion because so much of it is driven by tribalism. But I want to be very clear. The underlying ideology of the tribe, the underlying ideology of the tribe is racist. It is it is bigoted. It is closed off to any kind of critical thinking. It is averse to expertise, right? We don't listen to science because science is, you know, not the authority the Bible is, right? The underlying ideology of the tribe is deeply regressive and oppressive and destructive. And so, you know, that's the complexity of it all. Um, but yeah, Desiree, I, I, somebody, what are you, somebody else's thoughts about how we move forward with, you know, our evangelical friends or, or if nobody else has thoughts about that, you know, I, uh, somebody else want to react to the, to the election. What does it mean to you for the country and the church? Whatever. Just want to continue the conversation. Um, <clears throat> hi, it's Isabel. I had a, hey, I had a, hi. Um, so just a couple of things that came to mind and, and I appreciate, uh, like, I love our community and, and our church and just how we're able to have this dialogue. So I feel like so much better just talking about it. So thank you for this morning. Um, but two things, one is I absolutely agree with the tribalism because my family immigrated when, um, you know, back in the Reagan era, we came here when it was the 1980. And we thought it was so awesome, but that's because we just left communist uh, Russian Armenia. So compared to Russian Armenia, like Reagan was amazing. Okay. Yeah. Just sit with that for a minute. And then, <laughs> so fast forward now, you know, like 40 years later, and um, I'm, a, I'm actually really proud of our country. I know that's a really weird thing to say. But I think a lot of it comes from being an immigrant. You know, um, I think when you talk about tribalism, I think about my community, my Armenian community and the tribalism there against Turkey and, and everything that you see there. Like there were people there was like they were like celebrating that Turkey had an earthquake because, oh, they deserve that for what they did to Armenians. And I'm like, wow. So um, anyways, sidebar. But the point is, I wanted to talk more about empathy. And I think the point about empathy, I think part of why, you know, we don't see that as a strength is because some of it has to do with our addiction to technology, social media. We have this false sense of what we think other people's lives are like, because oftentimes where they're portrayed one way in social media. And then in reality, we don't know what anyone's going through. Yeah. Oh, you, you muted yourself. Did you mean to, Isabel? Were you done? Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, no, really, thank you for that um, very um, unique perspective as, as an immigrant. Um, and, and I think that's really important for us to hear. Uh, and I value your perspective and um, your sense of just valuing your American experience and and what it meant for you and your family coming here and leaving behind that kind of a, a very difficult life and world over there. So I wanna just really affirm that. And, you know, um, I think we need to hear that because I think too much, we, we, we definitely are very critical of America, um, us who grew up here and um, especially who are very privileged. Um, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, and then you were talking about empathy. Um, somebody else, somebody wanna react to what she said? Um, you know, I don't mean to do all the talking. Um, <laughs> Want to leave that 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 space open? Um, yeah, you're right. We don't really know the experience of others on social media. 
and it's it's easy to put people into, I guess, um, categories uh, very easily. You're right. Yeah. But nevertheless, for for me, I I feel like I'm always coming from a place of more or less addressing the ideas rather than trying to judge the person. Um, I feel like I really try to focus on that, that I'm trying to fight ideas that are pr promoting injustice and inequality and oppression rather than trying to judge the person who's espousing them. Um, that's, that's a difficult line to walk, but I think it's important that, uh, you know, our, 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 in a way our battles against, uh, you know, principalities and powers, ideas and arguments, right? So to speak, rather than flesh and blood, but um, anyway. Other thoughts? What, what, do you, what do you all think is going to be the impact on the church uh, as a result of uh, the end of the Trump administration and the fact that so many evangelicals still voted for him? I am hearing talk about how many people feel like there's an entire generation of Christians, meaning millennials, that will not be going back to church uh, as a result of the way the, the way the church has aligned itself with the GOP and politics of uh, oppression and bigotry. Do you all feel that way? I, I'm curious because I have mixed feelings about that. I'm hearing people say, you know, an entire segment of the millennial population will, will be leaving the church as a result of what happened over the last four years. Your thoughts? Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, Andrew. Hey. Um, the last couple of days actually had me reflecting on this a lot um, because I was thinking about this quote that Richard Rohr tweeted in 2016 um, before, before the election, but it was when obviously Trump was campaigning. Um, he had this quote that said, the evangelical support of Trump will be an indictment against its validity as a Christian movement for generations to come. Um, so there are, I think, aspects to that quote that maybe I, maybe I take issue with some aspects. I overall agree with it. Uh, I guess the, the sort of one, the getting into the weeds part of it would be like, well, is Christianity going to be considered v valid <laughs> at all? Uh, given that it's so lumped together with evangelicalism in America, um, and I think that that's that's the I guess bigger question for me, perhaps. But I think it's this is like a given. Um, I think for a lot of us here, uh, but I think that that uh, that idea is going to permeate, like from here on out. Um, I don't think this is the end of the Republican Party, but if they, if they plan on surviving, um, they need to reform. I mean, I, the democratic party obviously has plenty of issues. Um, and I just think that we're, this, this is like, there's been ever since like the election went to Biden, like basically when, once it was confirmed yesterday, it, it's just been this slew of sort of like absurdist, like weirdly poetic justice that I've been seeing with this whole thing with Trump's calling a press conference, thinking it was the Four Seasons Hotel and it was the, this landscaping company parking lot. Like it's just, it's, it's bizarre, but it's the same kind of bizarre that like I've psychologically been just 
grasping with over these past four or five years about the evangelical alignment with this movement. So I think evangelicalism is just dying. Um, it's it's going to probably survive in its pockets, but as an influential movement, I feel like this is like the beginning of the end. That's how I see it. I could be wrong, but um, like if it, if it wants to remain an influential movement, I think it has some serious repackaging to do. Yeah. Interesting. Um, anybody agree with him? Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Max. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's important to name it already was right. So it's like, I think we lose fact for good reason before Trump was even a candidate, there were books and books and articles and magazines about how the church was dying in America and especially the millennial generation, because for the last 15 to 20 years, church attendance in general has been on the decline. Church attendance in younger generation is even like a more straight decline. So this is all happening, right? So, so all to say, I completely agree with Richard Rohr and the assessment that we've lost a generation. I said the same thing to my parents the week of the 2016 election. I said, the church just lost an entire generation. Like it was already like slipping out the door and churches were trying to stay relevant. And how do we appeal to millennials? Because it's been a 20 year decline. I feel like it's important to name that Trump only accelerated that and he accelerated it at the time where it needed the opposite. Right. So, I mean, there's never any time that in a hundred percent of any one age group acts a certain way. So I, let's, let's just be honest and say like, of course there will be some, you know, members of younger generations and millennial generations in church. But I think on the whole, it is a completely true sentiment. Um, I think the other thing that's really important to name though, is we're not just talking about church and we're not just talking about evangelicalism, but we're talking about the form of American evangelicalism, which is founded more on white supremacy than it is on theology. Like it's people, millennials, Gen Z, Gen X, it's not necessarily right just the theology that they're rejecting. It's the recognition that the theologies are built on foundations of white supremacy that are, are structured to hold and maintain power. And any the poor, the marginalized, the other, like all that, like gets pushed to the edge under this disguise of theology, right? And say like, this is what it means to be the church is to be a white rural man right? Believing in the things that white rural men believe in. And over 50 years, that has now been put in people's heads that that's what it means to be a part of the church in America. And so it's really the stripping away of that piece. And in some ways, please don't misinterpret this. In some ways, I appreciate that the Trump presidency laid that bare and that we had all these chances of like morality, right? Character matters, morality matters, family values matters. All of a sudden, we've now had five years of the most anti-family value, anti-moral, anti-ethical, uh, you know, anti the worst character, proud bully leading this flat, this flagship, and everyone's saying, well, that stuff didn't really matter, actually. We just those are just things that we said, and those don't really matter anymore. Is I I don't think you can come back from that. I don't think mm -hmm. I don't think you can come back from that. So I think the church in America will die eventually, uh, and at least in the big, the big capital C form. There will always be churches. There will always be Christians. There will always be 
people, but the whole booming American Christianity wave the flag, but like in front of the cross, that is dead. And it is only a matter of time until the funeral. Yeah, I, I kind of, I, I agree. And I, I, I mostly agree with that perspective. And let me um, continue to open up to others to talk. I, I do see the Trump election as being this kind of like desperate last gasp in some ways to remain relevant I, in a culture where I think evangelicals are feeling increasingly marginalized and concerned about their supremacy, right? Uh, I think you're absolutely right to read it that way. I just, historically speaking, want to recognize religion's resiliency, especially religion mixed with politics, and its resiliency to even fend off rational critique and, and you know, rational and logical arguments that you think would defeat it. You know, I look at... Um, you know, the secularization hypothesis in the 19th century was that science was going to basically obliterate religion, that we were going to, in the 20th century, come into a completely secular era because science was going to essentially make religion obsolete. The understanding, even today among many atheists, is that religion is basically just bad science, you know, and it's going away. And like the car, the invention of the car displaced or got rid of horse and buggy, science is going to displace and get rid of religion. That has not happened, not, not even close. And even in a modern, you know, country like America, you know, we saw people this week going out and in front of counting centers trying to cast a Jesus spell on the counting center, right? We saw Paula White. Was that, is that her name, Paula White? You know, um, the, the Pentecostal evangelical wing trying to cast Jesus spells on the counting process. These are modern American adults. Lots of them are college educated. You know, I, I just want to say that uh, uh, it's the old, uh, what is it? Um, saying from, uh, oh, come on, what's his name? Writer of Huckleberry Finn. Um, come on, who's that Mark author? Twain. Thank Mark you. Twain. Mark, Mark Twain once remarked, uh, you know, uh, the rumors of my death have been greatly over-exaggerated. I think the same thing is, can be said about evangelicalism and fundamentalism in America. It is not, it has not gone away uh, by any stretch of the imagination. It has experienced resurgences over the last 30 years. You know, um, not to pick on, well, yeah, I guess I'm going to, um, you know, there's lots of millennial neo-fundamentalist megachurches, even in Los Angeles, that are not affirming of gay people, that are still deeply sexist and patriarchal, um, and they are populated by kids in their 20s and 30s, by the thousands. And, and these, these people are, I have no idea if they're voting for Trump, but, but I, they seem oblivious to me as to what's going on with, with religion and white supremacy and evangelicalism. I, I question whether or not it's really ever going to go away, I guess is what I'm saying. But anyway, I'm, I'm hopeful that it will. I think it's continually being marginalized, but don't doubt religion's resiliency and cult-like resiliency and the inability to think and people's desire not to think, people's desire not to know, uh, you know uh, people's aversion to the truth because the truth is scary. Anyway, uh, other thoughts? Yeah, I, uh, to kind of echo that, Aaron, um, and I apologize in advance for kind of pooping on the party a little bit, but something that's important to remember is if you look at the numbers, um, so the 538 Politics podcast said that if you look at the numbers, this election was a repudiation of Trump, um, especially because presidents usually get elected for a second term and he didn't, yeah. but it wasn't necessarily a repudiation of Trumpism because the House you know, Democrats lost seats in the House. Democrats didn't retake the Senate like they were expected. They may lot, still. They, lot, they may still. They may, but yeah. it's not looking very likely. 
And there a lot of candidates who align themselves more with Trump and who kind of subscribe to that ideology didn't do as poorly as most people expected them to do. And Trump didn't even do nearly as poorly as a lot of people expect them to do. So that's just something to kind of put in perspective. Sorry to be a downer. He but. got he got more votes this time than he did last time. Right? Yeah, exactly. In, uh, in, se- in almost every segment yeah. of demographic. Yeah. So, you know, I'm almost. saying... I'm saying let's 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 stay hopeful, right? But let's also stay realistic and know that, you know, the fight goes on. I guess, yeah. Other thoughts? I feel like if the shift happens long term, it's not so much because of a change. I mean, like we've never been as polarized as we have been now, at least in my lifetime that I'm aware of. Um, and, you know while we might shift more progressive as a country, I think that says more about the urbanization of our country rather than an actual shift and change in perspectives. You know, I know Desiree has talked so much about growing up in um, California farmland. Um, Ashley's grown up in Tennessee. Um, uh, Abe's talked about that in Illinois. Um, you know, all across the country where you get outside of the cities and the next generation is still as deeply entrenched in evangelicalism as, um, as the generation before them. So I do have hope for the progress and change, but my hope doesn't actually come in the fact that we're going to change and reform. It's that that demographic is going to get smaller because people are becoming more urbanized in general and cities are growing and you're exposed to more. But I, there, I have no doubt, I mean, it, I'm deeply convinced that um, red America is going to stay deeply, deeply red for a long, long time. Yeah, I would, I would, I would tend to agree with that. And that's a really good analysis, Bob. Other thoughts? Yeah, I, I just wanna say, that. oh yeah, take go in. Um, no, yeah, no. I just just to sort of uh, jump in on that, like, because um, yeah, obviously everybody kind of it's pretty uh, apparent the sort of urban rural uh, kind of split when you look at like the electoral map and all that kind of thing, and it's a little discouraging to see the, the level of support uh, even after this sort of um, this period <laughs> in rural America because uh, there really is kind of a cultural split because I, I think it, it's it's even um, you know, it's really, I think, beyond um, just sort of the problem of rural whites. Um, it, it really um, is, a, is a distinct kind of cultural shift um, between anybody really that lives in a rural area, um, regardless of ethnicity. Because uh, even if you look at Texas, um, there are certain um, uh, very strongly um, Hispanic um, uh, counties, rural counties, uh, that still swung uh, towards Trump. I, and um, so, so I, I don't know, when I looked at that, I, I just sort of, it kind of reminded me that it's like, there really is just a, a you know, sort of um, two different competing cultures. Uh, one that really is strongly kind of traditional and, uh, and identified with conservative uh, politics and one that's urban and identified with more liberal politics. You know, and I think our urban centers will, will get less religious for sure. Um, but I think rural areas will um, stay religious. And it's kind of like a, 
a pretty dangerous fault line, I think, um, and kind of a scary sort of fault line to, to see uh, developing in our country. So um, I don't know, I was just thinking about how important it is to uh, figure out how to connect to uh, rural America, which, you know, for me, it, um, it, it has become increasingly difficult the older I get and the longer I'm away from uh, living in, in the country. I, you know, at this point in my life, I've, I've almost lived as long um, away from rural uh, America as I, as I did when I, you know, grew up there. <laughs> um, and so it's getting even difficult for me to, to relate to the people that I grew up with, to my family. Um, and it's, it's, I, I, I would imagine it would be uh, even more difficult for someone that has grown up in, in the city or in the suburbs um, to even know how to relate or think or even can conceive of the way the world is uh, uh, for someone that is, that, that is just still in that kind of rural culture, you know? So, uh, that divide just, uh, it, it has to be bridged somehow. And I, I don't really have any answers. It's just, you know, sort of, uh, you know, we just have to find a way, uh, to, to, to connect in some meaningful way. That's my hope too, Abe, that we could bridge that divide too. I, I don't know if we can, and I'm sure that you feel the same way. Um, I find myself, really, you know, I, cause I have close family, um, that is very much still kind of, well, they live in suburban Chicagoland, but my sister lives in rural Wisconsin. And, you know, I, I am close to the, I, tr I really work at staying close to them. And, you know, frankly, we avoid talking about these issues because they're just too divisive and they don't want to hear my opinion, but they know how I feel. Right. And I know how they feel. So we just don't talk about it, which really isn't a solution. Right. Uh, and I still tell them every time I talk to them, I love you, you know, good talking with you, you know, I keep up the relationship, but I, I'm just saying personally, um, I don't know, I don't, I'm with you, Abe, I don't know how to, how to create that bridge. I don't know how to fix the divide. And to be honest, the, the longer uh, it goes on and the older I get, the less confident I am that that ever can be bridged and that these divides will, are just a fact of life. And I don't know where the end game is. I, I, don't know if we're facing a violence, you know, you know, continued, just ongoing, never-ending social moments of social unrest. I don't know, but I, I really, I guess I'm become pessimistic about it, and I don't think those divides can ever be bridged. But I'm committed towards, in in my immediate circle of friends and family that are back east, you know, loving them as best as possible. I'm committed to that, but again, I just don't know if it's possible to really bridge these divides. Part of what has been so interesting to me is to see how much the misinformation informs where people are. And I saw that kind of rolling through the chat here um, as well. But, you know, you know, part of the problem, at least within the GOP, has been a failure to call Donald Trump out on his bullshit and his blatant lies. And, and complete fabrication of truth. Um, because if you, if you only have one source of information and it's constantly supportive and it doesn't take a critical eye, let's be honest, it's a small percentage of this country who has um, you know, the abilities from an educational standpoint to actually reason. 
um, and to develop those critical thinking skills to be able to look and hear something and, and openly critique and criticize it without somebody else bringing in another perspective. So when you have you know, major news outlets that refuse to criticize, um, you know, then it, it creates this echo chamber thing that I know we've talked about a lot and it exists among, you know, liberal places in media too, but it's just been exasperated so much um, in, in this election leading up. And, and I, it's somewhat disheartening, but at the same time, I think there's a huge number of people. I mean, I've seen it myself in relationships that are just entirely unaware of how terrible some of the things that Donald Trump has done actually are. Um, so that's, that's a huge thing that I, I don't know how you, you know, we get over that. And then the other thing I wanted to say is uh, on the flip side, I also have seen in the, the increased politicization of the church that, you know, for a number of GOP voters, particularly evangelicals, the only thing that mattered is that Donald Trump is a pro-life candidate. Throw everything else out the window. If he's going to, you know, work and fight against abortion, then that is literally the only thing that matters. And so, you know, we can't undo that, but I think moving forward, it is important for us not to just talk about defending the rights of women to choose, but I think we need to be emphasizing that we too want to minimize the need for abortion to take place. Nobody wants abortion. Like, so there's these key issues that I think we can adjust the way that we talk about them um, that, that is not compromising, but is more of a peacemaking. Like there's more that we agree on than that we disagree on with a lot of these things, particularly with abortion, which has honestly co-opted the church. And I think is a huge reason why we're here where we are. Yeah, Bob, I, I, think, I, I think the problem is a lack of information and naivete for some people. I really believe that, um, that, that they need to be better educated and they lack the, the right information. They don't have access to the truth. But, you know, Tad DeLay points out that for, but th that's, that's a kind of common, in some ways, liberal misunderstanding of the problem. We just think people need to be better, better educated. When Tad says the problem is that people actually, the problem is desire, that they don't actually desire the truth, or they don't actually desire the same things. Because we, we assume that everybody kind of desires, regardless of left or right, we all desire some common good. Right. We all kind of we all desire the same thing. We all desire some common good. Well, as we're finding out, that's not really true, because the way good is even defined by the left and the right is different. Right. The right would define good as adhering to biblical values, you know, family values and straightness and white whiteness and, you know, uh, you know being being a Christian country. And, you know, we, we would define good as a women, women having the right to choose. We would find good as gay rights. We would define good as saying black lives matter and that racism is real and systemic racism is real. Those on the right, lots of them would say, no, that's not good. That is a fundamental, not just about misinformation, but about how we desire, right? We, we, you know, in a way, the problem is, is not that we just need to give them more information, but they need to change what they desire. You know, do, do they really desire the well-being of others, especially those who are vulnerable and, and hurting and oppressed and on the margins? And I'm not convinced they desire that. And, and uh, that, that would be, you know, that's harsh, right? Um, but I think that for a lot of people, that's the truth. 
Um, yes, for some who are kind of on the fence, I think getting them the right information can bring them over and help them kind of you know change and maybe change even their desires. But for a vast portion of those on the right, the problem is really they do not desire to know and they do not desire what we would define as good. They actually desire you know, the destruction of these structures and things that we really value. So I want to be clear about that. I think the problem is desire for lots of people more than lack of information. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just want to say something about desire. I, I thought it was really interesting that they seem to desire a Christian nation. So a nation that is under God, right? Right. Thank you, Max. For the air quotes, I appreciate that. Christian nation. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting about that is when I was watching, I don't know if it was C CNN or MSNBC, one of the two that I was watching, they were going over Biden's life and his faith. And it was so interesting to me. And it really caught me because I'm like, you you say that you want these things, but here's a man who's actually been through trial, tri tribulation, held on to his faith, but that's not the right faith, so it doesn't count. And it was so upsetting for me because I was sitting there watching it and I was moved by the whole thing because I didn't know his full story. Um, and if you don't know his full story, it's incredible. You should look it up. Um, but it was so, I mean, he looks to be the appointed president by God. If you look at his entire story, if you want to go that way. And so I just thought it was such an interesting polarizing view of who they say that Trump is supposed to be this appointed person by God. I also thought it was very interesting that if Trump was reelected, then he obviously would have been appointed. But since it's Biden, it's the devil <laughs> that yeah. they, that, you know, they have, God has allowed the devil to place Biden in power for some reason. It's just, it's just a really crazy um, contrast of the two. Interesting. Yeah. Thank Thank you for those. Um, yeah. For that reflection made. Yeah. And I posted in the chat column here, a video um, that I find enormously helpful on the abortion issue. It actually was created by Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales. It's, pro, it's from a pro-life Christian perspective, but I think it's a view of abortion uh, specifically um, that, that can help, help those in our family. I sent it actually to some family members that are single issue voters to understand why being a single issue voter is probably not a good idea and why abortion is a very complex issue that's not so black and white and cut and dry and how we can think about it and being pro-life, I'd like to think of myself as being pro-life in some, in, a, in, a, in very much in some ways. Nobody likes abortion, right? And I think we're all looking for ways to help people not turn to that. So this video, I think, is very helpful. It's just 14 minutes long. I would encourage all of you to watch it. I, I find it deep. I am not really well informed about the science behind abortion and the statistics and how it works. Emily has been kind of helping with that, but that video is really helpful and use it to send to your family members. I think it's very, very helpful. Again, it's from a Christian pro-life perspective, but one that I can actually get on board with. So anyway, um, good good points there, May. Um, somebody else wanna reflect? I was just gonna I was just gonna touch on what May said in the sense that it's why I'm grateful for communities like these. Everything that's kind of being covered has to do with intellectual honesty, right? And intellectual dishonesty and how deeply tied it is. Um, I don't mean this in a way that sounds elitist or like, 
let me just say, I recognize that I, I don't want to polarize here, but the, the discrepancy between education and, and being able to have honest conversations about this stuff is not able to be ignored. Like you can go to New York Times, I think they're already putting them out, the maps, but you can look back at 2018, you can look back to 2016. Right now, the ends keep getting pulled on is, do you, have you been educated? Like, do you value education? Have you gone to college at all? Did you go beyond college? Like all the tiers, every single level of education, right? It's these, these stretching of, okay, the people with less education also are more likely to only watch one news source, are also more likely to go to churches that all of us are saying, why would you go to that church? Are also likely to vote for things that are literally against their best interests, right? That literally are against the things that they say they believe in. And again, this is not to demonize, this is to say, we have a deep, deep education problem in our country and in our society. And literally one major political party has made it part of their platform to defund education because they know, they know, they know. Donald Trump had the quote, he's like, I love the poorly educated. That is a direct quote from Donald Trump at a campaign rally, right? Like he literally said, I love the poorly educated because of the support they give him. Yeah. And and I think we need to be able to name that. And, and I always go to like, what do we do? It's like value education, try to learn new things yourself, right? Value education with your family, try to teach. And all of that comes in, like people have talked about with relationship, Aaron, like that video you sent, that's a perfect example, right? That is a way that we can help educate one another. So I would, I just, I just, yeah. that kept coming up in some of these comments and we need to, we need to lean into educating. No, you're absolutely right. And I just want to say that if you ever listen and I think everybody should sometimes listen to conservative talk radio. I know it's hard. I know it's upsetting, but I really think it's important to listen to conservative AM talk radio sometimes to know how lots of people are thinking. You will hear, especially from guys like Dennis Prager, um, who I've listened to for years, them say the universities are completely corrupt with leftism and do not send your children to just a state school. That They actually will come out and say, you cannot trust the universities. Do not they will encourage you not to go to college. Literally, they are encouraging parents who do not send your children to college or they will become leftists. And, and this, this aversion to education is a deep-seated problem on the right. And um, it, is, it is terrifying that an entire generation is being raised that way. So Max, you're absolutely right. Um, and yeah, we walk a fine line there between you don't wanna demonize people that are not college educated, but you also wanna recognize the problem. Um, that's, really, that's really concerning, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, somebody else. Uh, I wanted to share something. I had a conversation yesterday with uh, a friend of mine who is black and immigrant, very liberal, very educated, well-read. We talk a lot. And he's an artist like me working in entertainment and he voted for Trump and defended that position on the basis of, I think what it really got down to was deep anger, but he felt that Trump was a disruptive agent. And he felt that Trump was critical as a disruptive agent in a way that Biden was not in that, you know, his argument was 
Biden would perpetuate a system that is not helping people that look like us. Despite the pronouncements to make change by not just Biden specifically, but both sides of this political conversation. He made the argument that Trump was not a true Republican. He just was burning it all down, right? Um, which to me is very concerning coming from places that are permanently burnt down. But that's, you know, a part of the dialogue that really didn't go anywhere. Um, okay. I okay, also- keep going. <laughs> I wanted to uh, ask you a question, but keep going. Sure, go ahead. Well, so are you saying just as a point of clarity, his point of view is that I wanted to vote for Trump to basically usher in a more kind of like radical reaction against the systems that aren't working because Trump is a kind of insider? Yeah, like he would acknowledge that he's a bad guy, he's bad news, but look, it, it, we're finally talking. Yeah, I see. <laughs> right, and so it says that was the reason for his vote. Um, I, I mean, I see multiple fallacies in there, but um, this isn't someone that's, you know, idiotic, right? Um, and I have many close people in my life who are the, the sort of traditional um, evangelical Trump voter and so on and so forth. Um, I went to Liberty, my dad is a PhD who taught at Liberty. And so, you know, some of these people are not, as you say, not educated. Um, many of the things that are sort of uh, social welfare and goodness, they argue that that's the role of the church, right? And they're trying to write whatever argument they're making politically. And, you know, some of them are not white, right? And so if you argue that they're insisting on a kind of whiteness, I think there's there's whiteness racially, but there's whiteness culturally as far as like what some people believe America should be in terms of your lifestyle and who you are and so on and so forth. So I think that even listening to this dialogue, which makes a lot of great points, I hear it as talking past other people who I have talked to. And it's not actually the same conversation still. And I think that's reflected in the voting numbers, which are, you know, Biden got a lot more, but like, it's too close. And it's like, it's not, it's, people are not having the same conversation. You know, I think that there's, the, the, we, we hope for a disagreement on like, okay, we want the same thing, but maybe the, the, the structure of your policy is different, but we're not even talking about the same reality, right? Here we sat here and talked about, you know, the, the value of education. Well, I come from a place where people insisted on education and, you know, in, I was raised on the sciences. I was around Christians who were all about the sciences. Um, but there's, there's a certain point where, where it hits an ideology and things start to fracture, right? And so in science, like there are places where you're on the frontier and you see where many cases both on the right, certainly, and on the left, a certain like ideology takes over and you see things happen. And then people start to argue about who's right and who's wrong instead of doing honest science. So I just wanted to point out that like, I think the conversation is really complex. And, you know, I see people who are, I think wrong. Like 
I think Trump is wrong for America if you understand how America was built from, from 1776 to the, the two failed governments in 1789 and what we have now. Like that guy doesn't even understand any of that, that's wrong. But when I look at it from a perspective of compassion, I think there's a reaction to something and that's where the conversation needs to happen. And to me, that's the gospel. It is meeting people where they are and actually having like, what is the, the real conversation in a, in a place of love? And I don't know that we change anyone's politics, but I do think we can touch their hearts by having the actual conversation. Um, and I'm not talking about extremists because obviously <laughs> there's no conversation there, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you for that unique point of view, JP. Somebody else want to either respond to that or have another thought? Can I hop in? Absolutely, please do. Um, so I kind of want to speak to both um, uh, just this whole education um, conversation. I, I think, yes, that it is very uh, multi-layered. Um, and of, of course, there's no... Um, there's no one analysis that's going to explain, you know, the phenomenon that we're seeing happen. However, I will say I, kind of a mixture of both of those last two takes with Max's as well. Um, I will say, you know, a lot of my job outside of this, you know, this year in quarantine is going to a lot of colleges and they're small colleges, you know, they're, they're in the middle of nowhere. They're in the middle of the country. You know, I think partially why they bring me there is because I'm, you know, a double minority um, ethnically, and that I'm a woman and that I'm a bisexual woman. So I check a lot of boxes for them. And the thing that I've realized um, over the last five years of doing this job is that um, there, is a, there is a level of what Max was saying, I think, where <clears throat> the education aspect of, you know, people seeking out higher education and understanding is, a, I do think, is a very big um part of people's expanding their minds but i would argue more i would argue that more than just the academic education of it is kind of to to speaking to the last perspective is actually the experience of knowing different kinds of people is is much more um is a much stronger bond to people changing their minds about things and I will bring up to that um, to that end I will bring up I'm not sure if any of you all have um, have heard of Derek Black um, Derek Black was supposed to be the new face of the alt-right about five years ago um, his um, what do you call it his uh, um, what do you call it uh, when when you uh, are the <laughs> the person who takes over someone's kids, like if someone dies. Um, oh, like, uh, you mean like a, fa uh, gosh, godfather? Godparent? Yeah. Godparent. Godparent. His godfather um, was David Duke, if that says anything, the former grand wizard. So, you know, he was supposed to step in and be, um, be the next guy. Well, he had his own show. He had his own, you know, radio show. He was stepping into it, you know, from a small rural town his parents were all in it and he decides he's going to go to a liberal college in in Florida and his parents were like I don't think that's a good idea you know I don't think you should do it um you know the those liberals might change you and he's like no no I'm going to bring you know the light to them so he goes to this college and long story short 
uh, people find out who he is on this liberal Florida college and he gets ostracized, except for this one guy who happened to be Jewish and he started inviting him to his Shabbat dinners. And everybody in the Shabbat group was like, dude, like you need to get this guy out of here. Like, you know who he is. Like, you know what kind of person he is. Like he doesn't deserve to have like our grace basically. And he was like, no, like, I just want to see like what happens basically. So he keeps coming to these Shabbat dinners, doesn't really say anything. And as time goes on, like I said, very long story short, this guy ends up being changed by the perspectives that he's seeing in this group. And all of this to say, this is why I think conversations are a huge part of that in, in step with education, because it can't just be like, okay, well, I'm going to go to college. Like I think Malin had said in the chat group, you know, unless you go to a Christian college where everybody else thinks like you, like, I don't think it's just education. And I don't think that it's just like conversations. I think it's like a marriage of a lot of different things, but two of those, the two of those things are really big elements because if you don't, if you never have to deal with like a black person or a gay person or a, an immigrant, a person who just came from Syria, who was like, if you never have these conversations with people, then you never even have to think that it's a real thing. You know, you can just turn on Fox news and be like, Oh, well, like, you know, those people, those people, right. Those people are dangerous. Those people are not like me. Those people aren't Americans. So I don't know. That's my perspective on it. Just, you know, being in the last five years amongst a lot of the middle of the country and um, and kind of seeing that play out in real time, I think that those two things are really big reasons um, why you don't see a lot of people in the middle of America changing their minds because they just don't have those experiences. They don't have those relationships, as you're pointing out. I think you're absolutely right that in some ways the relationships are even more important than classroom education at a college you're right. You're absolutely right, Lake. And when I think about, and I think when we think about a lot of us, how much we've changed over the last, you know, whatever, how many years, it's because of the relationships in our lives, right? Yeah. Uh, can I jump in? Yes, please do. Um, I just wanted to to make a, a small point that, well, I, I went to college. I thought college was great. I also recognize that we live in a country that provides us with 13 years of free public education and that it, should, it shouldn't take going to a university to learn to recognize a valid source, yep. to have deductive reasoning, all of those things. You know, we, we also live in a country that has systematically defunded our public education systems. And that did not happen in the last four years, Yeah. right? That has happened over a much longer period of time in the same way that Donald Trump did not invent systemic racism. <laughs> right. These are things that as a country have been embedded in our identity that we have sort of allowed consciously or otherwise to to continue. And so I just wanted to throw that out there as, as a reminder that that even though, you know, the Trump presidency has ended and, you know, we have a, a president that I think many of us would hope would would steer us toward a better direction. There's still work to be done that 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 work that that is there was already there. It may have been exacerbated or um, like JP's friend was saying, sort of brought to light by the extremism of Donald Trump, but he didn't create it. Yeah, no, really good. And remarks. it's our job to fix it, you know. No, really good points, Tina. Thank you for those. Yeah. Can I just um, throw in like 
there's a huge difference in my belief between education and indoctrination. Um, it's not always that your, your, your sort of primary education teaches you how to dialogue at the frontiers of your knowledge or experience with people. And I think that the classical university is a place of dialogue where people actually interact with each other, sort of the, the philosophical thing and make discoveries across different fields. I think many aspects of today's universities look more like primary schools where you're sitting in a classroom just receiving and then they give you the piece of paper. So I think like that's just a factor there. And I think in the church, not many churches actually have been to any that do what we're doing right now, which is a dialogue. It's typically a one-way thing with like the expert telling everybody else, this is what you're gonna believe, that kind of thing. So just wanna throw that out as far as what education is versus indoctrination. Thank you. And this is why we need the humanities still in the colleges and universities, philosophy departments, theology, you know, these, these fields, I think, really teach us how to practice kind of critical inquiry and to, and to do those kinds of things. And obviously the sciences do too, but I, yeah, JP, I think that's absolutely right. And Tina, again, I, we're not taught really good critical thinking skills. I think even at like at least I wasn't taught really good critical thinking skills at high school, but then again, I was kind of checked out of high school, but that's another matter. Um, Emily's going to jump in now and be like, his grade point average was da 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 da. <laughs> Please don't. Um, it's 1147. Um, we've had a great robust conversation. I don't want to make anyone feel like uh, this is going to continue on forever, but I wanted us to ha have extra time today because I felt like you know, it takes time to get the ball rolling with the convo. Um, but I also want to respect everyone's time. And we can, my plan is to, you know, talk next week about this somewhat in a different direction, maybe. But um, thank you so much, um, everybody, for being here. We are dismissed. Um, uh, please go in peace uh, if you want to peel away. Um, yeah. But um, otherwise, um, see you soon. Stay well. That kind of thing. Another thing we're not talking about is how much the virus has exploded over the last week. Um, so stay safe, everyone. Um, you know, do what you can to protect yourself.